Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Innova Asset Management is a boutique portfolio manager that has been managing client portfolios since 2010. Innova believe in constructing portfolios that work with investor behaviour rather than against it. This is why they have built risk-focused portfolio solutions that support a goals-based advice framework. Innova's focus on risk management and their active approach to asset allocation has been designed to work through all market cycles, which was evident in 2020 when they were able to participate in the market rebound while also protecting capital on the downside. Hello and welcome to this topic series on behavioural investing, where we take a deep dive into the client and advisor decision making process. My name is Fraser Jack and in this episode number four or five, we cover risk profiling and advisor investment philosophy, where we can start and where we should stop. So if you want to do more than just what's compliant when it comes to getting to know your clients, then this episode is a must. Welcome back, everybody. In this particular episode uh, of the series, we are focusing now on risk profiling and understanding the different aspects um, around risk profiling. We sort of um, look back in the, into the past and think about the ways that it was done and why it was done. Obviously, it came out of a conversation around know your client, but uh, you know we've just talked about goals-based uh, investing. We've just talked about biases, and we've just talked about uh, values-based investing. And you know it's it's often been very difficult to to see how risk profiling in the past has related to those things. I think uh, I think we're all sort of changing along the way. Uh, welcome back uh, to the conversation, Patricia and Catherine. I'm going to start with you today, Catherine, on this particular uh, episode on risk profiling, because I know you've done so much work in this area. Tell us about the work you've done. I love the topic of risk profiling because, as, as you've, you know, you've seen how many, maybe 20 fact finds from different licensees over the years, and they all have this, this same, more or less, same set of questions. And so I started thinking, I wonder where those questions came from. Yeah, where did they come from? I still don't know, but they definitely did not come from the academic literature. <laughs> it's like uh, someone just invented them at one point and then everyone just was like, well, it's used by someone, so can't be that bad. And it is bad, probably. So we can test. Drop my theory yeah. on this. I think they were actually invented by uh, yes, distri- distribution and of funds that needed to be sold as a you know a, a tool or a product. So we ended up with you know uh, back in the day FSR came out um, back in two thousand and one. We had all these you know um, fund managers. They had five different products, and we and we had to fit uh, humans into one of their five. Are they balanced? Are they high growth? Are they are they you know are they conservative? Uh, and I think uh, we, we, we managed to turn three into five. And thought that was amazing, but uh, but I think we've moved on from there. Uh, Catherine, keep keep going. <laughs> we have slowly moved on. We have so baby steps, baby steps. Um, there's a huge body of literature these days, at least. So there's these personal finance academics who research this stuff very heavily, and they do kind of niche areas. And I'm I take a more strategic approach because I'm interested in how it's actually applied to determining your clients' uh, risk tolerance for the purpose of financial advice rather than what the academics do, which is just let's figure this out for no reason other than we want to. 
So I see it has those three components, uh, risk capacity, which is comprised of human capital and financial capital, risk tolerance, which is the psychological side. So their particular present bias, loss aversion, and there are academic ways of assessing that available as well. Uh, and the third one is the risk need. How much risk do they actually need to take for this particular goal, which is a complicated discussion in itself, but they, they all kind of form a part of what becomes the overall risk profile of the client and they all are important contributors to their risk profile. They kind of feel to me almost like um, they're all involved in the prioritization of the goals as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That could be true. That absolutely could be true. Especially if you take into account uh, risk capacity, for example, we generally know where it's moving. So within risk capacity, you ha- we have human capital, which is our ability to earn income over our lifetimes. And so that decreases as we age because our number of years available to work decreases as we age. Whereas on the other hand, financial capital generally increases as we age, but it's something that as financial advisors, we know exactly what, not exactly, obviously, but you know what I mean. We know the ballpark of where it will be in the future. Um, So it's kind of quantifiable, which means we know at which point of a person's life, which levels of risk should be taken based on their levels of uh, risk, their capacity to take that risk, yep. quantitatively speaking. Yep. Now, Catherine, I'm going to go into these individually in a minute, but before we do that, um, I'm going to want to hear from Patricia. But uh, but as you speak, I also think about the agile world and the tech world and the and, and all those sorts of things. And, and there's a thing called D, DVF, desirability, feasib- um, viability, and then feasibility are all different concepts of, of ways of prioritizing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea around how we prioritize goals but Patricia from um from a practical point of view obviously when you're when you're an advisor you get handed down you know uh, from licensees all the time this idea of risk profiling and then you sort of just got to work out from a business point of view how to expand on that and make it make it an opportunity to find out more about your client how do you go about this yeah, um, and I um, definitely uh, risk profiling is not my favorite subject in the sense of uh, in a different from a different angle than what Catherine uh, came from in the sense that they've always um, you know traditionally been pretty useless. So um, I think you know that's why um, us as advisors have had to use a, a lot of other tools to to help with that. Uh, and the risk profiling tool just became more of a compliance tick at the end um, to make sure that our licensee um, is is happy. But um, we have to use a lot of other tools and education to get to, to that before we even complete the risk profile. And that, that's how I do it because I still don't think that um, there is a perfect um, you know risk profiling tool out there. And I think risk profiling in its in its own form isn't a um, a black and white uh, process either. You know, that there is a lot of uh, gray that uh, requires us uh, to, to uh, our help as advisors to get to the bottom of with clients. So um, the way that I approach it is um, on the educational side of things. Uh, a lot of the times is uh, talking about the different ways to invest, uh, giving clients, you know, a crash course uh, into the fundamentals, uh, the risks, uh, but then using our professional judgment as um, to overlay that. Uh, and it does get a, a very great, you know, the need to take risk. You know, I, I talk to clients about that a lot of the times. 
Um, and a lot of the times you might have fairly wealthy clients that don't need to take risk. But then on the other hand, they can afford to take risk. So why wouldn't they continue to grow their wealth if they can still afford to? So it is a very, um, um, I think, a very difficult uh, a convers- not not conversation, but a difficult subject because there isn't a right or, like right or wrong, in my opinion. Um, uh, and even the the different ways of risk profiling, um, it's not nothing's actually right or wrong. It's at that particular point in time for that particular purpose, for that particular goal, for that particular situation, in the mood that I'm in today. I feel like this. Um, so I think um, you know our job is to. Um, I think try to avoid the red flags uh, and try to uh, focus on the potentially uh, bad decisions that they could be making. Um, so you know, there's going to be a, a middle ground that can be that can be that can be good. You can deviate up and down, um, but we want to make sure that if they're making a bad decision, or if there's a red flag or a few things that they haven't considered that we're bringing that to their attention. We're really explaining the consequences. That's probably how I feel about it because the, the same accord, you may not need to take the risk. And, you know, is it our job to then recommend this really conservative, you know, put it all in cash and, you know, you don't need, but that, that's not in their best interest. Um, so I think the clients have to, to help us decide what's in their best interest. And our job is to give the, them the tools to, to, to get to that position. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to do with the uh, the concept of taking this as an opportunity of, of, of providing them a bit more financial literacy and teaching them and then and then in, in return, you know, getting that understanding back and that informed consent back uh, that they are informed and understand what they're talking about. Um, Catherine, I want to dive into these uh, particular areas, capacity, tolerance and, and need in, in a little bit more depth um, as we go through so that we can open up the, the box and explain them a little bit in a bit more detail. Um, let's start with, with risk capacity. How do you describe that? Risk capacity, as the name suggests, is our capacity to take risk and it's a quantitative measure. So it's it's not fluffy like the risk tolerance. Um, it's black and white to some extent. So we have human capital, which decreases as we age in general, and we can calculate people's human capital. So um, the number of years of, ed- of higher education that you have, the level within an organization, so whether you're entry level, etc., cetera, um, and the trajectory of that, so whether you've been uh, gone up a level, so to speak, in the previous five years, um, so, of course, years of experience increases human capital even though your age must decrease your human capital because you, no matter the highest level of – you might be at the peak of your career, but if you're, say, 65 years old and you want to retire at age 67, then your human capital is much lower, much lower than someone who's fresh out of university and entry level. So the human capital component is quantitative also. And so we, we, we can crunch those numbers and obviously the financial capital, probably the easiest one that most people look at. Um, we probably don't need to go into that in too much depth because uh, we know, we understand that there's income, there's expenses, there's cash flow, there's, there's existing you know, assets, all these things that are, are fairly, fairly uh, standard. Let's dive into the tolerance piece of it because there's obviously different pieces of this uh, interesting jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed there are. And also... Both risk capacity and risk tolerance really do have that angle of 
supporting uh, the rich get richer and the poor get the picture because both of them are are setting people up in a way and this is a systematic issue with even the best scenario, which is the one that I use for risk profiling, uh, setting people up in a way if they don't have the resources available, if they don't have the tolerance for the risk, then they shouldn't, um, then they shouldn't invest in accordance with, um, say, their long-term goals. And, of course, who do we know has low risk tolerance? It's uh, single mothers. <laughs> That's it. And it's, it makes sense because they're, they're the people who are um, – you know, they've got the most on the line, I suppose, with providing for their families and whatnot. And there's a huge amount of data on this. We're not talking about the Australian context here. We're talking about there's a huge amount of research on this, on risk tolerance across the world. So that's what the data says in general. And so the actual component of our psychological tolerance for risk, we can call it our aversion to loss, which is an individual uh, tendency. So some of us are easy come, easy go, no problem. And some of us are, oh my gosh, I lost $2 out of my, fell out of my wallet. I'm going to go and prowl the streets for three hours and look for it. And we're just different in, in that way. We do have a little bit of fluctuation based on the day. Uh, so if we're hungry or if we've been primed with something, if the media has been talking a lot about some crazy statistics all the time, we can be primed and we can, so we can be less risk tolerant. But by and large, we are, we do have consistent risk tolerance across our lives, uh, across our lives. And so we can calculate this also very quantitatively. So part of the test is about present bias. So whether people really are focused on the now, and not taking any risks for the future because they don't ex- they don't even, the future doesn't exist to people who are very present biased in the extreme, and that's the question of do you want fifty dollars today or eighty dollars tomorrow? You choose eighty dollars tomorrow, fifty dollars today, or eighty dollars in a month. Most people still choose eighty dollars in a month, but when it moves on to fifty dollars today or eighty dollars in a year, even in a theoretical sense, most people will move towards the fifty dollars choice even though the that's a pretty big return for sticking it out for a year quantitatively speaking so that shows us people's level of, of present bias and the other way that we quantitatively assess this uh, this particular tolerance for risk is we use a gambling game and the best way is to use kind of real money so even if we have a small amount of money available to do this and we say um, you have ten dollars to gamble on these experiments one of your answers will be randomly chosen and you'll have the opportunity to actually win that gamble that you've chosen and the gamble will be uh would you prefer a 10 percent chance of winning a hundred dollars or a one percent chance of winning a thousand dollars and so there's all of these different possible gambles and they just choose the 10% or the 1% or the 50% or the 10%. So there's different percentages and different amounts that they can win. And by putting in, putting it, they don't put it in. They are given, of course, the the $10, but then they think that it's, and they know it's their money and they have the actual chance of winning this particular um, money, real money. So then we start to move from the theoretical, which is the, oh, no, no, I don't like taking risk, to the practical of this is your money on the line here. What will you choose? Because I wonder, as Patricia, from your experience, it, it might be the case that in, 
in the office, in those initial meetings, clients might be saying, yeah, no, we'd be pretty fine with a 20, 30% drop in the portfolio. I don't think we'd be too fast. And then when the rubber hits the road, it's the, oh, oh no, I'm not ready for this at all. So finding out where that, the, the balance between reality and what exists in their mind is a really difficult concept with risk tolerance and tolerance for risk. Is that your experience? Um, yeah, um, to an extent, um, I think um, we've been lucky enough that we have educated clients quite well and, and have had the ups and have had the downs and uh, a lot of them have experienced the GFC before. Uh, so experience uh, speaks, you know, um, that that's I think what counts the most is having been there. Um, but I also make sure that I put it into numbers and I put it into their numbers. So, for example, I don't just ask the 20% question. I say, hang on, you've got 1.5 million. So 20% is, you know, $300,000. Uh, at that, oh, uh, no, that also changes the, the answer. Uh, and then we go through the process and go, that, that will happen. Like that actually will happen. <laughs> I just don't know when. Uh, so what are we going to do about it when it happens? And we work, work through that. Um, so I think my experience is more around that when it does happen, um, people just change their behavior. So for example, they, and this is part of, we, we tell them that actually, we say, you know, what you can do at that time is you control what you can control. So maybe the holiday that you had planned for that year, can you delay that? Maybe you tighten your belts. Maybe you will, yeah, delay your retirement. So we, we, we like prompt some of these discussions before they happen so that when it actually happens, they've had that before and it feels familiar. Um, but yeah, it's all about, I think, um, we just say, you know, you can't control, just focus on you can control. Remember, we've got the backup option. This is the backup option. And we just, we just keep reminding them of what the backup option is and, you know, and why we were the way that we were. Um, so I think when it happens in my experience with my clients, it's more being about they might change a little bit in terms of they're more conservative. They'll spend a bit less. They will, you know, know what? Maybe they want to invest less rather than more at the time when they maybe should be investing more. And then again, we'll talk about it. Um, so I think because we're lucky in the way that the relationship that we have with our clients is quite strong, um, and long term that, um, those discussions don't become like a blame on us or, uh, you know, I didn't see this coming. So it's easier to, to navigate. Um, but it's, it, it's not easy. You know, nobody likes to see their portfolio go backwards. Even if you remind them that actually, no, this is good for you. Remember like where, you know, if they are wealth creators, um, you know, we buy really cheap shares, <laughs> uh, for example. So, um, yeah, I think again, um, it, you know, even with our own money, we, we're not happy with that. And I'm a financial advisor and I know, I know I have to remind myself, no, no, that's, that's a good thing. You know, if I'm, if I'm buying. So, um, I think it's just a matter of, um, yeah, um, of con- again, worrying about what you can control. That's what I keep reminding them. Patricia, I really love this idea. Um, and Catherine, you mentioned as well, this idea of putting things in their own dollars and, and understanding what that means to, to the client. Um, you mentioned the, you know, the, you know, the game or, or the gamification style of using real money in that, um, in that psychological area, that tolerance area, I think it's important. It's, it's actually, I've, I've heard of one too recently that around the need, you know, we were talking about need and prioritization around, you know, here is, um, you know, here is a hundred, hundred dollars and, you know, 10, $10 notes. I want you to put the, you know, in the, in the buckets that you want it to go into what's more important than the other. And you can't put the same amount of money in, uh, in each bucket. you 
you've got to you've got to have it as a different level of money so that that forces people to then prioritize but um and but then comes back to their own you know the psychological uh effort of them physically going through some sort of a gamification process uh in this risk tolerance um area is i think it's really really a cool thing and i, I want to see more more of that happening um Catherine, just we'll finish off quickly on the, uh, you know, risk need, sort of the third area that you mentioned. Tell us about all the different moving parts of that. So the risk need is another quite quantitative uh, assessment, which is based on what what that goal looks like in terms of how much money is needed and the time frame that it's needed by, basically, which then is results in a reverse calculation of um, asset allocation for that particular goal. And... It's a it's an interesting component because it's also, you know, it is the client's goal, so it's not imposed by us, but at the same time we've calculated what risk they need to take rather than ask them what risk they're comfortable with in this particular component. So it's uh, that's why it's obviously part of the, the analysis and not the entire thing because there has to be some kind of um, balance given there. And I'd be really interested to hear what Patricia has to say on how that actually plays out in interplaying with the the rest of the components of risk profiling on a practical level. Yeah, um, it's a really um, tricky one, right? Um, uh, what you mentioned before, Catherine, it's so true, is, is the people that need to take risk are the ones that aren't naturally comfortable. The people that don't need to take the risk are the ones that are naturally comfortable. Um, so, you know, it is part of what... Uh, we need to uh, look into, but it's not everything. So um, the way I've addressed it in the past, so an example I can give is um, that is a little bit more complex, uh, uh, is around, um, so when you do your bucketing strategy, and let's say it's for someone that is about to retire in two, three years, so it's not like they've got a lot of time to, um, to you know, learn and, and, uh, and be educated to increase their risk profile over time. You know, like the simpler example is, you know, that, um, single mom that you're talking about, but she's young, uh, and it's her super. Maybe you might start more conservative and then you educate them and then you over time increase the risk tolerance when they're more comfortable. Uh, and then that could lead to much better outcomes. You know, that's a simpler example. Another one where it can be where, um, sometimes it's just, you've just got, that's how much you've got. You know, you've only got two, three years to go and that's it. You know, you're not going to keep working in your seventies and, or you can't get a job or whatever it may be. And you maybe didn't save enough. Um, so in that particular example, what I've done is um, I've looked at different levels of spending and then what the different levels of spending meant from a risk profiling, uh, from a bucketing and, and asset allocation perspective. And then potentially, even though um, we might implement a more um, growth, so like let's say, for example, they need to have, I don't know, around 70% in growth assets, but let's say the risk tolerance seems to be more like 50. I'm just picking figures or, or the bucketing approach says it should be 50. Let's, let's say that. Um, so the bucketing approach uh, maybe calculates it to be 50%, but they need to take more like 70% or higher growth. Um, you, you know, would explain that to them. And then we might do other calculations with lower level of spending. And then depending on which one is more important to them, you might then go, okay, well, um, if you spend less, um, you can potentially invest uh, more conservatively. Um, or um, if you want to increase your chances of having more 
or your money lasting longer, but you're worried about, um, you know, that the, the bucket's running out is at that point when the market does, um, you know, um, crash or, or something significant happens, can you then reduce your expense? Like, have you thought about it then? So you essentially have the, the different discussions and you try to explain that, you know, there, like the solution is not perfect. Um, and these are the risks in each of them and just give them as much information as, as you can to help coach them to make that decision because I don't think it's a decision necessarily that we need to make for them. Uh, it's around um, just, again, explaining that we just don't have the perfect solution. You know, you've, you've run out of time uh, in a way and these are your options and these are the risks. Yeah, I feel like um, from what we're talking about here, from the from what you, the points that you're both bringing up, um, that is uh, risk profiling traditionally has been done prior to investing. So you do the risk profiling, that's it. Then you find out how much money they got, you know, like all those sort of things. In the order of, of the scheme of things, this isn't, risk profiling shouldn't be done just first and sit and forget. It's all about saying, here is where we're at. Here is some more information. We go back and we adjust and, and the risk profile isn't really set until all of the goals conversations have been had. Catherine? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I love that approach that Patricia, Patricia has of that, the continued evolution of the client's risk profile and those quantitative and psychological components all playing a role. And there's a couple of interesting things uh, I think that we can do like as advisors. So I haven't got the up-to-date up to data, but it's a few years old. Back, back when there was FOS, before there was AFCA, 70% of the financial advice claims that went through there were because of or under the category of risk profiling. And that's because, of course, you can't put a, a claim in or a complaint or whatever it's called based on uh, investment returns. So they all went under risk profiling. And if you look at the quality of our risk profiling tools, it does make you uh, be a little bit worried. <laughs> and I think a really interesting reflective tool, especially for advisors who have multiple advisors within their offices, would be to just check and see what kind of uh, bias and influence you're making on your clients' uh, risk profiles that, that come out because we do actually have a, a bias and we do influence that, whether it's unconscious or conscious, probably unconscious, obviously, in this scenario. So it's easy. What's the risk profile of the advisor? Everyone knows their risk profile usually as an advisor. And then just take your entire database and find the average risk profile of your clients and see what it is. So there's a, a firm I know that, that did this process. They had about 10 advisors and nine of the advisors were high risk tolerance individuals. You know, they're very experienced, educated in this space. And on average, their clients had high risk tolerance also. And there was one advisor who was a young fellow, but he was very conservative and he didn't want to take risk for his own investments. And it just so turned out that his clients were also, uh, on average, conservative investors. And so this kind of activity, of course, you can easily control for um, the demographic influences and that kind of thing as well if you're really interested in it. But it's a great thought exercise to, to help advisors think, I wonder if I'm influencing this process, like first off, it's a very important process, a critical component of our ongoing discussions with the client. And second, I wonder how much influence I'm having on the results of what client uh, risk tolerance actually comes out at. Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. And we might leave on there because we sort of touched on that again with the uh, the original episode that we did in the series around uh, the biases. Um uh, thank you so much, uh, Patricia. Thank you so much, Catherine, for uh, the, the, this talk around um, risk profiling. Uh, we'll, look, we'll catch you in the very next episode when we start getting into modern portfolio theory. 
And we're continuing the conversation now about risk profiling. I'm talking to Dan and David. I'm going to throw to you first, David, here. What are your thoughts? Obviously, where there's there's a lot going on in the space. There always has been. It's been highly criticised. It's been, uh, you know, it's been the the, the, the punching bowl for a, lot, a long time. T- tell us about uh, your thoughts and ideas around risk profiling. Yeah, Fraser, I agree with everything you've just said in your introduction there. It's a, it is a bit of a punching bag of the industry. And, um, and you know, hopefully understanding the risk profile of the client um, is, you know, really comes to the forefront again of being used in the right way. The worst outcome would be if this just becomes compliance to, to comply with, you know, what your, your duties are in terms of developing that comprehensive plan for your clients. So hopefully that's not the case. And um yeah, you start off with yeah your psychometric measures and and they're sort of an overall. Is it based on this concept that you sort of have a risk tolerance characteristic about you and you're prepared to apply that risk tolerance to all activities of your life, and that's sort of a concept that I find quite challenging. Uh, you know, uh, I think it mixes with a whole range of things. So it mixes with um, something I mentioned before, which is. Um, ambiguity aversion, which is sort of, yeah, you might be prepared to take risks, but you might want to take those risks where you actually understand the risks that you're taking. So um, that sort of doesn't get as much attention as risk aversion itself, but I think the two are so interrelated. So if I tried to describe myself to you, I'd say I've got medium risk tolerance, uh, but I'd say I'm highly ambiguity averse. I really won't invest my money until I understand the nature of those investments. So that sort of tries to frame it. Yet, yeah, that ambiguity doesn't really exist much, you know, in the the guidance that comes out from what is good regulatory practice and so forth. And there's a whole range of issues like this. So, yeah, I think let's not treat it like a compliance exercise. Let's – and somehow decrease the formalities that that are around its requirement and try and – refresh our use of risk aversion and make it used in a in a really positive way is sort of where I'd like to get to. Yeah, I agree. I think it started out as a, um, uh, obviously, know your client and then yeah. it, it became a short questionnaire for ease of purpose and then those questions became drier and drier and more practical. Uh, Dan, you've got some interesting thoughts and ideas and opinions on this. Let's uh, let's throw them out yeah, there. Yeah, I've got some strong opinions on this and I, some, I'll, I'll pick up on some of the things that David said and I know we said we don't want it to become a compliance exercise Let's let's be honest. That's exactly what it's become. It's become a box ticking exercise. Um, I haven't spoken to a you know a, an advisor that I would consider high quality that would go through a risk profile questionnaire, then use whatever is this they get at the end to make all the decisions for the client. At the end of it, that just they know that that is wrong, um, and it it has become a compliance um, requirement and. Well, let's just face it; that's what it is. But it doesn't have to be. It can be. It can be far more more valuable. Um, and the idea, David, you, you said that um, you know the concept of risk tolerance applying to everything across your whole life you find challenging. I would have used much stronger language. I think it's absolute, just it is complete and utter garbage. Um, the the idea that you have one single risk tolerance for every aspect of your life, all goals and everything that occurs and and will be like that forever is just absurd. Um, It doesn't exist. I mean, your risk tolerance will be different based on your time horizon, based on when it is you want to achieve your goals and at what point at which you – 
you know, you want to prioritize those. Um, and then we don't take into account at all um, one's capacity to take on um, risk. We, we only talk about risk tolerance because, you know, whether they can sleep well at night, but what about their capacity to take on risk and also potentially their need to take on risk because somebody could have, you know, very high risk tolerance um, and be prepared to take on massive amounts of risk um, and they have huge capacity because they're, they're, they're quite wealthy, but there's absolutely no need given the goals that it is that they're trying to achieve. And so under a traditional framework, you would invest them based on that risk tolerance, applying, you know, inadvertently exposing them to risks that they do not need, which may mean that they don't achieve the goal that, you know, they already have the capacity to achieve if they'd invested in a completely different way. Um, so I think it, it needs an entire overhaul and needs to be thought of in a multidimensional framework, not only just, you know, different types of risks, so tolerance, capacity, need, you know, the, the risk of not achieving a goal, but also into an intertemporal framework as in over different time horizons because, um, you know, depending on your time horizon, you, you may have a different capacity or need or ability to take on risk. Um, yeah, sorry, I have very strong opinions about that and I, I really think it can be approved a lot. Yes, I think advisors have struggled with the concept of, you know, goals-based investing, values-based decision-making, all these things that we sort of touched on in the past and then going and opening up their uh, their standardised risk profile and go, well, this doesn't match anything, um, you know, banging their head against the wall. Mm. Uh, it's definitely a tricky one and, and I think one of the things that they don't take into account is – is that either decision-making behaviours, like past decision-making behaviours, like the what sort of car do you drive? Why do you choose a top of the range or a low, you know, whatever you choose to make, you know, the the previous decisions that you've made around money have generally been based on some sort of goal or value. So they sort of don't really take any of that into account either. Yeah. And yeah, getting back to your word, which we both mentioned, Dan, which was that compliance word. And um, so you do fall back on a system and it misses all the information that you've just sort of talked to, Fraser. And um, yeah, but on the other hand, if you'll sort of say, well, let's put these systems aside and let advisors just assess their clients and make their own judgment, well, there's research that shows there's an advisor effect. So you know, an advisor's own degree of risk aversion will actually affect their average assessment of their client base. And you don't want that happening either. And yeah, so how do we sort of unpack this and, and make use? And I think some of the elements that you both mentioned, actually, um, the word that cries out to me is, is framing. If, if, if the goals are framed in the right way and then you have that sort of risk discussion, surely that's got to be a far more relevant assessment of the, the, the risk tolerance or risk aversion of your um, client than just something that's generic and not has no context around it. And I think that's that's really where hopefully we can get to. But of course, from a compliance perspective, um, compliance has to evolve because every risk tolerance assessment will be a unique piece of client interaction. It's not something that can be you know, systematically compared in the way it has been in the past where you say, yep, this here's a, here's a standard tick in the box for this. So, you know, there's a, there's a real uplift opportunity and I think it's a, it's a really positive one for the industry. Yeah, so somehow we've got to try and work out how to turn that uh, compliance obligation into an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And it it is an opportunity. It's an engagement opportunity. It's an opportunity to understand clients better and understand their values better. Um, 
you know, I, I had, had an advisor describe this to me once and, and I, I still can't get over it that, you know, you, you, you go through a risk profile questionnaire and at the end of it, you know, you get a score of four, so you growth. Um, and it, that's, that's a reasonably fixed level of risk tolerance the client has at the time. But instead of putting them into a portfolio that is managed to that level of risk, instead they're put into a fairly static asset allocation portfolio and they, you give them variable risk. That's the antithesis of what the, the result was supposed to be. Um, you know, if we, if, if advisors are given the, the capacity to be able to, um, have conversations with clients around more than just risk tolerance and risk tolerance for associated with goals, um, but also risk capacity and risk need in association with multiple goals, I think we're going a very, very long way to turning what is a currently a compliance ticking the box exercise into a fully engaging value additive, you know, uh, uh, approach to, to, to providing a service for your client. Mm. Yeah, I think risk profiling definitely come out of, uh, of FSR 20 odd years ago, uh, back in the day when we had, you know, five options on, on funds. And obviously the options around funds is, is, you know, is a completely different world these days. And yet we've still trying to work from a system that was created 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and you're really sort of starting to push things along here, Dan, or you, you as well, Fraser. And I sort of um, get back to my bugbear, and that is I'm always advocating for clients to understand the financial literacy, financial education of their clients. And, and there are basic tests through to quite advanced tests of financial literacy around. And the most famous test is called the Basic Financial Literacy Assessment Test. It's only, there's a three-question version, there's a five-question version. It looks at things like, do you understand compound returns, time value of money? Do you understand how mortgage pays down, really? And do you understand risk and diversification, really? Basic but foundational concepts. And globally, and Australia's no exception, only about 40% of the population pass that test, that three, five-question test. And it just sort of shows you how, how lacking of those insights are. And so I, th- I think it's hard to unpack risk aversion without having a good sort of understanding of um, you know, literacy and, and knowledge levels. And, and getting back to, to your comments, Dan, I, I think they're, they're really good. And, and about goals and risk capacity, I think risk capacity and the goals conversation do really start to interact with each other. Of course, the goals have to be in the context of your your capacity, your financial capacity. So I think there's much far richer discussions that I'm sure the best practice advisors are sort of trending down. For me, probably my, my observation is that I'd be very hesitant to use risk. I wouldn't use risk aversion at the core of any sort of financial plan. But I do think you don't want to necessarily throw out any useful information that you can discover there. And so if you frame it right when you're going through that discovery process, I then believe it has two useful applications. So one would be the education and the communication piece. And that is that if you sort of realize or assess that your client doesn't have strong education and and you can broach that issue without, you know, offending them and so forth, then anything you can do to uplift that education and um, peace and the way you choose your communication techniques can really just add, again, what I call advisor alpha, which is 
bringing people along on the journey, helping them understand the range of experiences that may have. All this contributes to them being able to stay the course on a plan that's been put in place and not exit at a poor time and and put their outcomes at risk. So there's there's a real piece there that I can see. And I also think this sort of a little bit of hand-holding. Yeah, I sort of think risk aversion does give you insights into the particular clients that you need to hold their hands and say, you know, you, if you do have an assessment of risk aversion, um, you know, when you start to have your, your fast sell-offs in markets, you've, you've probably got the, the order of the clients in which to call them up and say, hi, you know, these things happen once every five years, once every three years or whatever. But remember what happened the last few times, but here's some charts for you. Things do bounce back. Things are now cheaper, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, let's just keep focused on the goals here and and um, and you're still on track to achieve them under this plan or, or we need to reassess. Yeah, um, and there are a lot of advisors out there, just on the, your first point there around um, financial literacy, there are a lot of advisors out there now creating information and, um, you know, there's with the, with the obviously with podcasts and those sorts of things and mm. uh, there is a lot of more information coming out. It's just a matter of making sure that's good information, but, yeah. uh, but I think um, there's a lot of uh, conversations. Dan, I just wanted to bring up one point two that we haven't thrown into this that you raised earlier and that was the prioritization of goals um, mm. and how that can have an effect on you know on on this conversation as well yeah absolutely because uh, as David said th- this concept of goals and capacity sometimes you have to have tough conversations with clients where um, you know certain goals may not be able to be achieved um, and so therefore without a, a level of prioritization how can you determine which ones you should be concentrating on you know to a greater extent than the others um and you usually find that the shorter term goals are you know they're 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 immediate requirements and they're they're usually things that they're absolute they're actually essentials um so they're not necessarily goals they're essentials they're they're required for a basic standard of living um and then you'll have things that might be more medium term you know throughout time where um, you may need to create some wealth and then you may have aspirational goals which you know could be you know further down the path it might be where the, that that charitable conversation that we were talking about earlier might come in um, where you may have a completely different time horizon therefore a d- different risk tolerance that's associated with it and and um, I think without that at least a basic form of prioritization of what those goals are then you're just going to try and achieve all of them and if you try and achieve all of them you're likely to achieve kind of none of them um so let's get some sort of level of prioritization and in fact guys you you, you were talking earlier about financial literacy and and um i just wanted to quickly jump in i'm not an expert on this but you know there are a lot of advisors going down the financial literacy path because ASIC are now acquiring advisors prove that, it, that clients understood the advice that was presented to them. So there's now a, a regulatory requirement in a form, I mean, like I said, I'm no expert, that you need to be able to demonstrate that there's some form of literacy of your client. So it's almost an obligation that the, the, the advisor have um, tools at their disposal to be able to help clients with literacy and be prepared to have those difficult conversations when they may not score that well. Like as David said, you know, if we get 40% in Australia and that's not much different to around the world, I'd probably bet that it's up at the higher end compared to um, other areas of the world. Um, you know, I could be completely wrong, but from, from you know, a, a lot of, yeah, anyway, sorry. I was just going to say, um, Dan, Australia's lucky. We've got two of the world's leading experts on financial literacy based in Australia, Hazel Bateman and Susan Thorpe. 
sort of um, real rock stars of this part of the industry, and yeah, they do lots of that work with with um, with with Australian surveys and studies, and and maybe that's an area they they can sort of. I think it's mainly been with institutions, but maybe they should be starting to engage with um, the financial planning community and working out what needs to be done there. Yeah, standardisation. It amazes me as an external looking at financial planning sometimes how few processes are standardised across the industry. I just sort of think, geez, if things are made open source available and it's easy to tap into and pick up, it would just save a, a world of cost for this industry sometimes. I love the way we describe them as rock stars of the financial <laughs> literacy world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that an oxymoron there? That's, uh, that's, uh, that, we're all leaning into that. We're all going, that's, that, we all think we're rock stars of the financial industry world. Uh, financial literacy world. Thank you so much for, um, for for jumping in and having a chat about that uh, risk profiling topic, uh, gentlemen. We look forward to catching you in the next or in the final episode of the series. Mm-hmm.